It is Friday, February 23rd, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, art as a pathway. And she wanted me to look at these Impressionist paintings and uh, a bunch of 19th century work. But when I saw uh, this Dutch artist from the 17th century, I was mesmerized. George Anthony Morton will discuss art as healing twice this weekend at St. Paul's in Fayetteville. Plus, the prom comes to the U of A stage. Because the play is rooted in a real event, um, and it's it's rooted in real, very um, palpable experiences that a lot of our students um, connect very deeply to, um, we never sort of forget that it's important, that it's an important story. And what happens in the kitchen for a special restaurant week? Maybe draw some new people in or give some of our regulars a, a unexpected reason to come in that night. First, the news from NPR. KUAF is supported by Therapods Float Spa, offering self-care for mind and body. Located in Uptown Fayetteville, Therapods has flotation tanks and the Lucia Meditation Lamp. Appointments available at 479-790-2448 or therapods.com. This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, February 23rd, 2024. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ozarks at Large, a production of 91.3 KUIF, which happens to be a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Let's begin our Friday in the best possible way with Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics. He's in his Fort Smith office. Happy Friday. Well, happy Friday. Those are, again, I've said it before, those are two words that definitely go together. Happy (laughs) Friday. All right. Well, let's start with some less than happy news. This is uh, a water capacity issue in Fort Smith, one that could have a price tag north of $200 million. Yeah. You know, um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate. You know, sometimes you get a bill in the mail and you don't (laughs) really know how much is going to be. So you slowly kind of peel that thing back. That's almost the way we're kind of getting with some of these um, Fort Smith board agendas when they discuss water and sewer issues. It's like, oh, what's this going to be this time? But on top of all of the 600, 700, whatever it's up to now, million dollar consent decree work the city is required to do, they have, and this is somewhat of a good problem because they've had a lot of growth, especially south and east and some growth in um, some of for some of the commercial customers or the uh, contract customers, but they need more capacity, more essentially water pressure. And one of the solutions is to build this 48-inch water transmission line. It's another line from the main supply, like Fort Smith, that would cost around $221 million. And obviously, the city of Fort Smith doesn't have that laying around. So, um, you know, some this is goes to some of the conversations they've had about do we enact the short-term half cent sales tax do we raise are we gonna have to raise a water rate and there are some they're, they're discussing some short-term solutions they can act to that will kind of delay this being a problem problem but if anyone's driven out for example at chaffee crossing and seen all of the housing and apartments and commercial projects going up they'll probably get some kind of idea that you know, there's there's a growing demand for water uh, in the Fort Smith area. So there will be some very tough discussions uh, over the next year or so with possibly some necessary solutions to put in place and tough decisions within that time frame to figure out how they're going to address what could be, you know, a critical issue. You know, there are a lot of things you can get by with not having. Yeah. Water is not one of them. 
Well, you mentioned that part of this is growth. And one way, one way to kind of measure growth is, I guess, home sales. Uh, Fort Smith Metro home sales fell in 2023. Yeah, just and well, like every almost everywhere yeah. else in the country, home sales uh, fell. But yeah, we we got some numbers a couple of weeks ago from Ashley Milton. She's an executive broker with Chuck Fawcett Realty. She she's uh, operates both in the Fort Smith Metro and Northwest Arkansas. For all of 2023, there were 3,273 homes sold in the metro area. It's down 14.5% uh, compared to 2022. And it's not a surprise, obviously, with uh, interest, higher interest rates is really the is the issue. The value of those home sales was $725 million. That's down 12% compared to 2022. But, you know, when interest rates go from 3% and tick up to almost 8% within a year, or a year and a half, that is going to put the brakes on a market. Now, Ashley, talking to her, she sees some people returning to the market. But, you know, you have a couple of things. Number one, you have, and I think we've talked about this before, you have people who probably could make a mortgage payment at 3 or 4% interest, but 6 7 8% interest, they can't. Or you have people who are in a home and they got their mortgage at 3%, and they could they would probably be interested in buying up or moving or but, you know, it, you don't want to trade a 3% mortgage rate, you know, for a much higher mortgage rate. So that, in turn, creates a lack of supply. Even uh, one of the things we hear from realtors is that they still have some folks who are who can afford the higher interest rates, but there are just not enough homes on the market for them to find one they like. So right. I anticipate, unless the Fed changes its mind and has several rate um drops this year, which I, I would be very surprised if they do. But if they do, that will be the uh, only thing that will really help uh, these home sales numbers recover, both here in Fort Smith Metro and in Northwest Arkansas. There is an article at talkbusiness.net about possible ideas for downtown and how to make it more, you know, walkable and connect Garrison to the West End where the museum and all these things are. There's a, There was a term in this story by Tina uh, Dale Alvey that I had never read before, and it's a little misleading. We'll get to the big picture in a second, but pedestrian scramble. I had never heard of that before. It's a way to get people you know, safely across the street, but it sounds kind of the opposite. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a it's a lighting issue where um, the light will change and it will stay red longer or green longer, depending on which way you're going. To because there's most if anyone's familiar with Garrison Avenue in downtown Fort Smith, it's not just a narrow little road you can jump across in a you know in a right. few seconds. But yes, Central Improvement this uh, business Central Business Improvement District. Let me get that straight. They have for the past several meetings been just gathering a lot of ideas on how to better connect. Uh, downtown Fort Smith with what's going on on the riverfront and other parts of the city, throwing out a lot of really good ideas. But as with a lot of ideas like this, they're going to cost money. And they recently kind of looked at some projects that will cost anywhere between 2 and a half to $3 million. Uh, one is that, as you said, the scramble. The other is um, what they're calling kind of a 21-foot pedestrian promenade that, if anyone's familiar downtown, kind of connects that western end uh a street that would be a, a good connection from the um south side of garrison over to the north side to the down to the riverfront area there are some connections they discussed on the east end around um uh, the cisterna uh park mm-hmm. that would in- improve uh, pedestrian traffic this is all about pedestrian traffic getting both 
people and people on bicycles uh, that were garrisoned is much more friendly uh, for them to walk and to use that. Um, there's also, again, if people are familiar downtown Fort Smith, there's a Court Street area that would connect um, Rogers Avenue and Garrison because there's a lot of, you know, there's some pubs and there's some other things. Uh, the Bakery District, for example, that are on that south side of Garrison Avenue, that, uh, south side of both Rogers and Garrison Avenue that would be amenable to providing different destinations for people to walk back and forth between Rogers and Garrison. So there are a lot of good ideas. And I've said this before, um, a lot of these ideas have been thrown out in the past, but I am optimistic. This group, this Central Business Improvement District, they seem to have the will. They have the money now. They've passed an assessment. But they really seem focused and um, uh, determined to make something happen. It'll just be a question now of what do they choose to do first and how do they how will they grow and what they um, choose to do. So um, one of the things I'm optimistic and eager to watch them uh, as they decide what they do. All right. Finally, uh, the UAFS Baseball Lions off to a great start. They're seven and one going into today's game against Lubbock Christian University in Texas. And speaking of baseball, ninety days from today, the Fort Smith Marshals in the Mid America Development League will have their first ever game in Fort Smith. Yeah. Again, I'm not near <laughs> near the baseball fan you are, but uh, I got to admit, I um, and I know this is not the Northwest Arkansas Naturals. It's not part of the you know the farm team system. But I'm I'm kind of getting excited about yeah. maybe going to some of these games. Um, they're going to start uh, May 23rd with a four-game series here in in uh, Fort Smith against Texarkana. They're uh, they'll have a July 4th uh, weekend homestand, and their uh, the Marshals organization is working with the city of Fort Smith to maybe come up with some things to make it um, more interesting. But as you mentioned, they are using Crowder Field, the Lions Field. That's where they'll be playing until they can get another field. That's their goal is to build their own uh, place to play. But, yeah, we're I'm eager to get some tickets and, and, and go watch. Um, it's just a, right now it's just a six-team league. Uh, let's hope they're successful. Let's hope they can grow. But a little bit of added, added entertainment in the Fort Smith area. And over the course of the summer, it's 34 home games, so that'll be fun. Michael Tilley and his colleagues cover all of these stories and many others at talkbusiness.net. Michael, let's do this again next Friday. Hey, well, we'll do that, and I appreciate you uh, having us on. This is Ozarks at Large. The movie Master of Light, which can now be seen on Max, introduces us to George Anthony Morton, a classical painter from Kansas City who now lives in Atlanta. The documentary explores his childhood and incarceration for drug-related charges and how art can heal and transform. When the judge sentenced me to 11 years, I said, I'll show you. Think about the system that failed her. I am not what has happened to me. Your story, your experiences, your being seen, it's the likes of it. 
Well, I kind of always escape. George Anthony Morton will speak twice this weekend at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville. It's part of the Tippy McMichael Lecture Series. He'll talk about art as healing tomorrow evening at 6, then give a talk titled More Light, Illuminating a Path in Dark Times, Sunday morning at 10. I recently talked with him via Zoom and asked him how he prepares to speak in front of an audience, whether it's one like at St. Paul's this weekend or on a university campus, at a correctional facility, or at a world-class art museum. He says he preps in a similar manner to how he approaches a blank canvas. I, I do tend to treat a blank canvas in a similar way. Um, just functioning and allowing form and flow to come out of that. So they say form follows function. So I just show up in that sense and and start functioning and hopefully some kind of form will will flow out of that. And I got to say, it isn't always um, perfect when I do that, but I have been in the practice of just allowing myself to be in the moment and, and, the, and the, to allow the moment to, to heavily influence what, what happens on canvas or with uh, such arrangements as these. Did you realize early in life that, that you had a desire and gift to, to draw? I did. I feel very lucky in that sense as well, because um, for some of us, our talents are innate innate and and kind of readily apparent. Um, And so I was one of those lucky kids that whenever I sat down and, and went to draw, people would encourage it and say things like, wow, you're, you're pretty good at that. And at the time, I, I didn't always know it. I was just um, doing what came natural. But right away, I started to recognize that I was a bit different when it came to uh, depicting what I saw. And that was very much encouraging for me. And so it's always been something I carried throughout my life as opposed to others who may kind of stumble across what they believe to be their purpose uh, later in life, which is just as valid. Um, uh, I, I feel like I, I'm, I was lucky in the sense that, that that was always apparent for me. When you were young and you realized you could draw and you liked it, were you thinking, though, this is something I want to do professionally? Was that something that was open to you? No, I didn't I didn't even know that, that it, it existed as a profession. At the time, it was just an impulse. And so in my film, I, I kind of uh, alluded to how I was made aware that it was this viable career path in the form of um, copying a Rembrandt painting in the museum um, that I saw when I was a child and it was introduced to me by uh, a, um, a teacher I met in the juvenile facility who promised me to uh, reach out, that she would reach out to me upon 
my being released and take me to the local museum. And she, she kept her promise. She took me to the museum and she wanted me to look at these impressionist paintings and uh, a bunch of 19th century work. But when I saw uh, this Dutch artist from the 17th century, I was mesmerized. And that is where my journey started. Was this I was 16 at the time. 16. I would have been 16. Yeah. Was this the Kansas City Institute of the Arts? Well, it's uh it's called Nelson Atkins. Nelson Art Atkins, Gallery. right. The Nelson Atkins, of course, yes. I think it's um before before Crystal Bridges, that was probably the closest thing for you all. It was. I remember, and I have no artistic talent, but I remember seeing a work by I th- let me see if I get this pronunciation right, Coravaggio. That was at the oh, Nelson yeah. Atkins. Oh yeah. And it was just I'm I'm gonna use the same word you did, mesmerizing. Yeah, man. His usage of dark and light and how he um he embraces the shadows just as much, if not as much or more than the light. Um and he he definitely preceded Rembrandt in that regard. Rembrandt would have been looking at the Caravaggios of the world. Hmm. Caravaggio is um, early Renaissance. But an interesting thing you mentioned Caravaggio because he he was a thug. <laughs> that guy, man, he, he got into some trouble, you know, as an artist. He, he was on the run. He, he murdered a few people. What? I have no backstory on him. Yeah, Caravaggio has a very interesting backstory. So, um, yeah, we, we get these guys in the museums and we celebrate them and, you know, we know them by their, their last names. Um, but there's a whole history to Caravaggio. He was a part-time pimp, <laughs> a murderer. Um, and I mean, this is well known, you know, he, he, uh, uh, killed a guy and, um, went on the run and uh, was exiled um, from Rome. And so, yeah, he has quite quite the interesting backstory. And, and this is the stuff that informed those brushstrokes that you saw in the museum. So when you say you're copying this Rembrandt, you're, you're eyeballing it, following it with your hand? I mean, just from... Yeah. Wow. I'm going to turn my camera on okay. uh, for a brief second. I mean, it may not be visible to sure. any potential viewers but um i happen to have hey Hey. i'm working on a copy now um just for the purposes of study this copy is um by another 17th century master it's still in the sketching stages um but i'm i'm working it out and as you can see I, i apply grids and things to like help me get it exact but it's definitely all freehand this artist is um, uh, an artist that you would have seen in the film, not as prominently as Rembrandt, but um, his name is Velasquez, Diego Velasquez. Yeah. And um, he painted a picture of his uh, Moorish slave in, in the most dignified way, if I must say. Um, and it was exhibited in the home of Caravaggio in Rome. He took his slave with him to Rome. He was not only his slave, he was uh, his, his 
a primary studio assistant who was an aspiring artist, that he would eventually use this painting to, to free him and sign his manumission papers. Um, but the process of doing master copies is something that goes back in history. Even the Caravaggio's of the world would have copied the Da Vinci's. The Velasquez's of the world would have copied Rubens and other artists in Rome while he was there. It's something we do to stay growing, to stay learning. Um, in no way are we attempting to um, pass this off as uh, original work unless we do something to make it more original. But ultimately, it's an educational tool. I don't want to sound cliched, but, and I might be stretching this, that that could almost be a metaphor for life, looking to people that you admire, seeing how they did something, and then kind of being influenced by that? Absolutely. We, we stand on the shoulders of the great ones who've come before us. And, um, yeah, I guess in that sense, a midget can see much further than a giant when, you, when you're standing on the shoulders of them. But that is a metaphor for my life. Um, so much has been established and learned by very smart people who have walked the planet and long before we came and I see it as a, as a tremendous responsibility and privilege to be able to, to, um, glean knowledge and wisdom from such people. And so in the tradition of art, um, it's highly respectable to, to study the masters of the past. And they all did the same. Like I said, the, the um, 17th century Rembrandts and, and, and Velasquez's of the world studied the Renaissance artists from the 14th century. The Renaissance artists studied the Romans and the Greeks, and the Greeks studied ancient Egypt. How great was it that you had the teacher that took you to the Nelson Atkins? It was pivotal. I wish she knew just how much. I, don't, I, I haven't been able to um, find her since then or reach her but it, it, it completely changed my trajectory and it definitely planted something inside of me that she had no way of knowing how it would germinate and what it would would, would grow to become and i wish I, I hope she does i hope she 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 gets to uh see some of the work i'm doing someday and feel proud that she made a difference in one life you know you mentioned the film that's available streaming, and you talk to groups like you will when you're in Fayetteville. What compels you to talk about your life, to, to share what you've been through? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, there's, there's a healing component in it for me. Um, being able to share my story, and we all have a story, you know, we all do, and that, that's not lost on me, but the, the, the fact that I could possibly maybe impact one life who 
may have needed to hear something that I said at the right time, at the right moment, and let maybe just one person know that they're not a frozen narrative and, and that they could rewrite the script of their lives at any given moment and that it's a choice. Um, I, I'm deeply inspired by that. The idea that we, we, we don't have to, we can, we don't have to leave the world the way that we found it. You know, we come here, we see things and we can leave it a little bit better for the next person. George Anthony Morton is an artist, speaker, and filmmaker. He'll deliver two talks this weekend at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville. Tomorrow night at 6, he'll talk about art as healing and give a talk titled More Light, Illuminating a Path in Dark Times, Sunday morning at 10. The documentary Master of Light can be seen on HBO and streaming on Max. More about George can be found at georgeanthonymorton.com. More about the talks this weekend and the entire lecture series at stpauls.com. FAY.org. This is Ozarks at Large. The focus on Jada Pinkett Smith's family life means that so many people don't see her for the artist she is. As an actress, she's explored the shared trauma of the hip hop generation. That emotional expression, really wanting to connect to others who had experienced what I had experienced because we were really invisible. Jada's artistic mind. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Tomorrow morning at 10 on KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large, final Friday of February. Let's celebrate that milestone with Becca Martin-Brown, who happens to be the arts and entertainment editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Welcome back, Becca. Hi, Kyle. You know, I feel like we've been letting our listeners down a little bit. How's that? Well, we've been kind of rushing through the business end of this. So I just picked two things (laughs) to talk about today, and we can be a little more relaxed about it, perhaps. So when I was a little girl, we moved to southeast Kansas, and my aunt and my grandmother had an antique store. It was in a side room in their house. And antiques then were almost all fragile. Like you didn't see, oh, an old size as an antique. Cut glass and etched glass. And there was a kind of glassware called Mary Gregory that had these beautiful little girls on it. And I loved it. But there is an exhibit currently up at the Rogers Historical Museum that speaks to that inner little girl like crazy. It's called A Century of American Glassware. I'm already worried I'm going to break something, but keep going. (laughs) (laughs) I bet that they're used to that and have it where you can't. I hope so, yes. But they have all of the lovely things, the depression glass. Remember the baby pink depression glass? Oh, yeah. And uranium glass, which is so cool, and radioactive. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. And without black light, it's kind of a greenish-yellow color. Yeah. And in black light, ultraviolet light, it glows. But because it's radioactive, you wouldn't want to use it as a candy dish. I would think not anymore. I'm told that it's no worse than standing in front of your microwave. Okay. All right. It just sounds impressive to say it's got uranium in it and it's radioactive. <laughs> I see. But it's really pretty. 
this was all part of having your house set up, particularly at the turn of the 20th century, to receive guests, you know, to have candlesticks and cut glass water pitchers and dessert plates. And it just makes my little heart happy. Where did all this glass come from? Is it part of their permanent collection? It is part of their permanent collection. One of the things on show, well, 200 of the things on show, are, have you heard the word salt cellar? I don't think so. Before salt shakers, there were little dishes that were with your dining service that had salt in them. And you would take a pinch and put it on your food, the food that way? Precisely. Huh. And they might match... They might match each other. They might match your dinnerware. They might be silver. They were like a big thing. And they have 200 of them that were donated by Agnes Reagan to the museum collection. They also have carnival glass and milk glass and jadeite and Fire King, which was like Pyrex. And Okay, I need to stop now. I'm, I, for your sake, I'm glad this is an exhibit and not a sale, because I don't think you would come out of this with any money left. I never do. <laughs> I never do. I like your first suggestion a lot. What else you got? Well, while you're up that way tomorrow, mm-hmm. the Great Northwest Arkansas Model Train Show is happening. Now, this is something that's been happening annually for some time, right? I think maybe this is like 30 years or something. Yeah. And it's happening at the Benton County Fairgrounds. A couple of years ago, the museum that goes with the A&M Railroad picked this up as something it sponsors. For years, it was the Sugar Creek Model Railroad and Historical Society. Right. And now it's both. But they promised that they're going to have all kinds of model trains. And then if you fall in love, (laughs) you can go to the train museum in Springdale and you could start this whole new weird obsession with trains. This train show show is nine to four tomorrow. Tickets are five to twelve dollars and the money does go to local charities. There's an afternoon with Nate Powell, the author, tomorrow at the Fayetteville Public Library at two. Right. National Book Award winner. Mountain Street Stage, Sunday at 2 at the Fayetteville Public Library with flamenco guitarist Raja. And if you happen to be on the eastern side of the state, there is an event on Sunday at 7 o'clock at the Joint in the Argenta District in Little Rock called Shining Light, a cabaret celebrating black voices. And it's going to be music, dance, and spoken word performances as a celebration of black history and a herald of the future. And tickets are $10. ArgentaCommunityTheater.org slash buy hyphen ticket. And you can check out today's What's Up page in the B section of the Democrat Gazette and see what else is going on. You had me so interested when you were talking about the, the, the salt, what'd you call them, the salt sellers? Salt sellers. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it hit me, that means somebody had to invent the salt shaker. That's one of those things that you just take for granted, like it's always been there. Yeah. According to tastingtable.com, the earliest known salt shaker debuted in 1858, and it was credited to, guess who? John Mason, the inventor of the mason jar. Let's take it back one more. Uh Somebody had to figure out that salt made things taste better. 
Yeah, well, I figure that took, that was the person who discovered salt. About 30 seconds later, it's like, oh, hey, <laughs> these fries are better. Not, this tastes good, and it preserves this dead animal for later. <laughs> That's right. And my heart is hurting a little bit. So I think those were all discovered in practically the same day. All right, that's enough weird. Go yes. away. Go yes. back to trying to figure out your new phone system. Thank you. Becca Martin-Brown is the arts and entertainment editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. We'll do this again when it's March, Becca. We will. Fayetteville's second annual Restaurant Week begins serving up deals and specials Sunday. Nearly 80 restaurants will participate during the seven days. This week, we invited Chef John Harpool, Executive Chef and General Manager of Boca, and Molly Ron, Executive Director of Experience Fayetteville, the presenting organization for Fayetteville's Restaurant Week, to come to the Carver Center for Public Radio. Chef John Harpool says while the week doesn't really change anything in his kitchen— he still looks forward to it. It's exciting and it's nice for our uh, our specials to be broadcasted to a larger audience and maybe draw some new people in or give some of our regulars a, a unexpected reason to come in that night. Maybe they see something that they're excited to come try. So maybe they were not planning on coming in on Tuesday, but they see our menu and decide to. You mentioned specials. I know you've got a couple for Restaurant Week, right? So we have a uh, lobster American fettuccine. Ameri- Lobster Americaine is a old-school French soup, so this is kind of a pasta play on it. It's almost like cousins to a lobster bisque. So it's four ounces of claw and knuckle lobster meat, and then fresh tomatoes and arugula with our house-made fettuccine pasta in a brandy and house-made lobster cream sauce. Mm. And then there's a dessert? It is. We did our uh, chocolate and sea salt olive oil cake. Molly, how important are restaurants to the Fayetteville economy? Oh, my goodness. Um, I could – that is a whole other – you'll have to have me back, Kyle, and we'll talk <laughs> just exclusively about that. But um, the restaurant industry is a huge driver, um, a huge sales tax driver, a huge um, employer in our city. We have a lot of people that work in the hospitality sector. Um, and also from an HMR perspective, which is how we as the tourism organization are funded through the hotel-motel restaurant tax, they um, are responsible for 75% of our – our revenue. And so this is a way for us to uh, give back to those restaurants and to our patrons and to thank them for all that they do. During what is typically um, a, a bit of a slower time, we try to schedule restaurant week during a time when restaurants are not already so busy. So hopefully it's expanding their business rather than just replacing it. I have a couple of things that I would love to tell you if you are not already hungry enough after listening to the at Boca. So if you are in the mood for burgers, Feltner Brothers is bringing back, this is something popular demand, they are bringing back a former menu item of the pretzel cheeseburger. So it's their classic cheeseburger with Feltner sauce on a pretzel bun, which I think just sounds absolutely (laughs) Amazing. Um, Flyway Brewing, which is a relatively new addition to the food scene in Fayetteville. In the former... Yep, formerly Apple Blossom, um, up north, um, north area of town. The first... 
15 customers who mention Restaurant Week will receive a complimentary pretzel, and they also have a special menu item, Buffalo Chicken Irish Nachos. So if you want to go try Flyway Beer, you can also try their Buffalo Chicken Irish Nachos. I, I feel a pretzel great. theme here. Yes, it seems like it. And yes. then that was, a, you know, that just happened uh, organically. And then also, I just have to say this. Um, at Bordino's, they're bringing back a strawberry basil lemon drop cocktail. Again, a former menu item that went away that is now coming back just for restaurant week. Spinach fettuccine and a Woodford vanilla chocolate amaretto gelato. Mm. That sounds no. delicious. I've been dreaming about that one, too. <laughs> when it's a busy night in the kitchen, can you get can you and your staff get in a groove? Oh, yeah. That's that's the sign of a good kitchen. And so it's a well-oiled machine. And when it's working well, it's actually super fun to be a part of. And I mean, you know, unpredictabilities come up and throw wrenches into that machine. But when it's when everybody's grooving and uh, the food's coming out good and uh, everything's going well, it's it's actually pretty fun back there. Is there music back there? No, there's not. Uh, we're, we have sort of an open kitchen. Oh, that's right. We want that beautiful view for everybody to see yeah. our, our wood pizza oven. So we got to keep it relatively tame back there, but it's... It's never quiet back there, let's say that. <laughs> Molly, obviously, Restaurant Week's been a success. This is how many years now for Fayetteville? This is the second year that we have Just the well, we, that we have revived it. So gotcha. I think, um, you know, years and years ago, Fayetteville had a Restaurant Week. But experience Fayetteville, um, after the pandemic, last year was our inaugural year of starting again with this format. And what I love about it, Kyle, is that each restaurant sort of does it in their own way. So we have um, local restaurants, of course. We also have chain restaurants, fast food restaurants fast casual, fine dining, um, you know, everything from Whataburger to Atlas. So all ends of the spectrum and everybody can do it in their own way. So for some restaurants, it's a special, like what John has talked, Chef John has talked about at Boca. Other restaurants, it's a discount. Um, and so it's what works. We want it to work for the restaurant. A, dis- a discount doesn't work everywhere. Mm-hmm. Maybe a menu special doesn't work everywhere. So the restaurant gets to really pick how they want to participate. So you, you mentioned that it's fast casual, it's casual, it's locally owned, it's chains. Is it all brick and mortar? I mean, is it all stationary? It is not all stationary. In fact, we do have um, a few food trucks um, that are participating. One in particular is Dot's Nashville Hot Chicken. If you haven't been to Dot's, you should definitely try it out. They have um, Flight of the Chickens. That's going to be their restaurant week special. And they have every heat level from mild all the way up to one called, listen to this, the cry of mankind. I won't be trying that, but if you if that's your thing to go out and really try to get it as hot as it possibly can be, you could try the cry of mankind at uh, that just it's not my deal, but I do love Dot's Nashville hot chicken. I do want to hear from someone who tries it because yes, I will not try me that too. either. Same. Right. I would like to even watch someone right. maybe try it. All right. Yeah. Molly Ron is executive director of Experience Fayetteville, the organizer of Fayetteville Restaurant Week. We also heard from Chef John Harpool, executive chef and general manager of Boca. You can find out more about the participating restaurants at experiencefayetteville.com. Restaurant Week begins Sunday and will last through Saturday, March 2nd. It's almost prom season, especially for the University of Arkansas Department of Theater. The Prom is a musical comedy that uses a real-life event for inspiration. The basic plot and This part is pure fiction. Actors pan for their performances in a failed Broadway play decide to find a cause to improve their public image. They read about, and this is the element rooted in fact, a teen girl who wants to take her girlfriend to the prom. But the local PTA tries to deny her that experience. This week, I spoke with Morgan Hicks, the production's director, and Jason Burrow, the music director, about 
the prom. Jason says there's plenty of fun music for cast and audience to enjoy. Fun music with a lot of heart. So that's that's fun to get to tackle because it feels like you are doing something worthwhile for a purpose. You know, it's a lot of hard work to learn all those parts, to learn all of the harmonies, to learn the, the, the whole thing together. But then you feel it, there's a lot of stakes when you go on stage as an actor to perform them and it means something. So then that's great to work on. This cast is mostly undergraduate? Or We've got um, grad students. Mix. We've got uh, three? Four. Three, four, three, I think. Four. Yeah, so how four. do you work with, <laughs> with young actors? Because it's not just acting. I mean, singing and singing with heart and telling this, the story. Absolutely. Well, that's the fun part, I think, of doing educational theater is that it's not, I mean, because in some ways it is different from professional theater. You know, in a professional setting, I don't so much offer uh, craft tips, you know, or teaching tips or like, ooh, try this and think about this way. It's more like this is what we need it to be and let that kind of sit. And then if the actor ever asks, you know, for some tools, then you can get in there. But it is part of the job of the educational theatrical experience to go like, here's what I need and here's seven different ways we can get there and here's things to try and like, ooh, I see that one's working but this one's not, let's try something different here. So it's really getting your, um, you know, the hats to switch a little bit. Yeah, every time that you do a show at the university, um, we kind of think of the productions as these laboratories where we get to like practice uh, all of the skills that we're building in our classes. So we're able to kind of reference the work that they're doing in their classes. Some of them are earlier than later. We've got freshmen in this and we've got grad students. So um, the work that they're doing in the class might be a little bit different. Um, sometimes we're asking them to do something that they haven't done yet in class. So we have to do a little, a little extra uh, coaching and a, l- a little extra um, reminding sometimes. Um, But yeah, it's always uh, a little bit of a mix when you're doing educational theater of um, what you would do as a a professional production and what you um, what you kind of need to do as a teacher and as a coach. You mentioned working with your actors and you say maybe we didn't get there this way. We'll go this way. Is that are you talking about timing? Are you talking about no? What's an example of something you got to get to and work to get to? Sure. Um, I am so I'm the, I'm the music director, and so that means I am leading the orchestra and I'm playing the piano, but it also means I'm teaching the vocals. And part of my skill set is as, as a voice teacher. So I'm able to, and you never know what, what a key is going to unlock the lock in that <laughs> moment. And you have to have a very large ring of keys um, to reference Von Helm, <clears throat> to unlock that lock in that moment. Meaning sometimes it's it's trying an acting note. Sometimes it's it's saying, um, uh, what if what if this has happened? What if what if you think of this? Sometimes it's something very physical with their muscles. You know, our our singing muscles are we are a machine, and the machine, the human machine, functions the way it functions. We can't fight physics. We try all the time, but it is what it is. And me knowing uh, how to help uh, a singer's muscles, their throat, their body um, to, oh, try this, th- think of this, uh, smile. You know, it could be as simple as like smile or frown or, or take, a, take a different kind of breath, right, might evoke that moment. So there's so many different ways to, to go about building that, that moment with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you ever have the experience where you've suggested the different breath or something and then the note is happening and you see the actor's eyes get wide like, oh, my goodness. I, I did that. I did. They, they did that. And that's the best. And I, I always say, like, I've, I, 
I, I always thank them for those moments, you know, because for them to trust us is such a gift that they give us, right? Because if, if they, hopefully it means they feel safe with us. If they did not feel safe, they don't have to try anything. They, they you know, we, you can't force another human. I have kids. You can't force another human to do anything. Um, <clears throat> but I always say, like, thank you so much for letting me guide you, for letting us push you a little bit in, in, the, in the right loving ways, for trying that. And then when, they, when it happens, I'm like, yeah, you did that. You put in the work, right? I offer, we offer everybody the information, but you got to go put in the work. And yes, to see that happen is so exciting. Mm-hmm. Morgan, this is set in Indiana. Yes. But it's inspired by something that happened in Mississippi, right? That's right. Yeah. It was um, a true story that happened in Mississippi um, that the the writers of the musical reset in Indiana, I think at a little, a little bit of a jab at Mike Pence probably at the time because he was uh, a legislator there. Um, but it's a, it's a story about um, these two girls who um, in high school um, that uh, just wanted to go to prom like any other people that are, you know, seeing one another and excited about these, um, these experiences of high school. And um, in the play, um, the PTA kind of gets wind of it, decides to, they can't ban a student from the prom, so they need to just cancel the whole prom altogether, which creates an uproar in the community um, because they don't want to, um, they don't want it to cost everyone uh, the, the prom and the prom experience. So, um, so yeah, that's what's going on sort of at the, at the beginning of the play. There are a lot of um, emotions in this play. And in a subject matter like this in the wrong hands of a songwriter or a playwright could just sort of, I don't know, turn into shtick or two dimensions. It doesn't here. It really doesn't. There's a lot of heart. I mean, it is a funny, funny play, um, and it does. Uh, it goes the distance as far as comedy. Like it pushes uh, the, those comedic pedals um, pretty hard. Um, but I think that because the play is rooted in a real event, um, and it's it's rooted in real, very um, palpable experiences that a lot of our students um, connect very deeply to. Um, we never sort of forget that it's important. That it's an important story, and the play does a really good job of bringing us back to those moments, those grounded moments, um, so that we're, we're never, you know, spinning completely out of control in the comedy. Thank you both very much for coming Thank in. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Opens the first, runs through the 10th. Where pe- can people get tickets? Um, they can get tickets at uarctheater.edu. Um, I think that there's a link in there um, where, where you can make a reservation. And they're yeah. free? Yeah, free tickets. They're yeah. free? They're free. They're free. Wow. Yeah, we're happy to share it. That's right. It's like it's a story that that means so much to us. It's like it feels like a very um, important story right now. It feels really immediate right now. Um, the story, um, the play, really does forward this idea of inclusivity and um, and uh, so in the spirit of inclusivity, free tickets. <laughs> very good. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you, so you much. Kyle. Morgan Hicks and Jason Burrow are director and musical director, respectively, for the University of Arkansas Theater's production of The Prom, a musical comedy opening. One week from tonight. More information about showtimes and tickets at theater.uark.edu. This is Ozarks at Large. It's my pleasure to bring Courtney Lanning back to the show this Friday to talk about a new movie. Courtney, welcome back. 
Kyle. Thanks for having me back. It's my pleasure to be here. Excellent. This week we're talking about Drive Away Dolls, which is directed by one of the Cohen brothers. Yes, uh, this is directed by one Ethan Cohen. And for people who are not familiar with the Cohen brothers, I'm sure they're familiar with one of the movies that they've directed together, whether it's Raising Arizona, like we've talked about, or Big Lebowski, or Fargo, or one of my personal favorites, True Grit. Well, I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan. I think I've liked almost everything they've done, so I'm excited whether it's one or two brothers working on a film. Does Is my excitement warranted for Drive-Away Dolls? Your excitement is warranted. Yeah. It's a good movie. I think traditional Coen Brothers fans who are watching this movie and expecting another Fargo, they might have to lower their expectations just a little bit. Uh, Ethan may not quite be as strong by himself as he is with Joel. Uh, but that's what they've been doing over the last couple of years, apparently, is making some solo projects. Joel Cohen did um, The Tragedy of Macbeth with Denzel Washington for Apple TV Plus in 2021. Oh, yeah. And now Ethan Cohen has Drive-Away Dolls, which is, I would call it a quirky time capsule of a road trip movie. Time capsule? It, does it? Is it not taking place in 2024? It is not. This movie is set in 99. Ah. And you can tell that because when they're driving on this road trip, there's no GPS. You instead have multiple scenes of them pouring over atlases. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they've got desks with Rolodexes on them and a bunch of landline phones. And if you don't know where somebody is, you're not going to find them because there's no tracking, no I mean, unless you're Will Smith, an enemy of the state, I suppose. There's, right. there's just no tracking you down. All right. So it's set in 1999. It's 25 years ago. Most Coen brothers, be it Barton Fink or whatever, are just a little bit off kilter, at least at some point. Do we have some of that vibe going? Oh, absolutely. Good. Uh, you will recognize the traditional Coen fingerprints all through this movie with a bunch of quirky characters. Our two leads are, uh, they're both lesbians, a girl named Marianne and a girl named Jamie. Uh, Marianne is very repressed. She is unsatisfied with her job. She's getting ready to take an impromptu trip to Tallahassee from uh, Pittsburgh, where she lives. And uh, Jamie, her best friend, has just gone through a really messy breakup, and uh, they decide to hit the road together. Along the way, uh, they find out that this car they've been given uh, was supposed to be held for some criminals, and then there's like a briefcase in the trunk. Uh, these criminals take off after them to get this briefcase back, and they're very inept. So there's some criminal caper uh, elements to this chase movie, and the girls don't know they're being chased for most of the film, but the criminals are, well, they're not the brightest, and so hijinks ensue. Uh, Coen Brothers movies generally are R-rated, and R-rated for a good reason. This one follows suit. Now, I called this a good movie. Kyle, this isn't a family movie. <laughs> right. Uh, this is a film that is quite explicit with its nudity and its sex. Uh, it unapologetically wears its lesbian identity on its sleeve. Uh, that does not mean you have to be gay to appreciate the movie. It's just uh, I've recently discovered that Ethan Cohen's wife is, in fact, gay, and she helped write this movie and edit it. And uh, you can definitely see the, the queer fingerprints all over it. And that's kind of the interesting time capsule element because uh, whereas so many queer stories that we get in movies, what few movies we get, are set in modern day, mm -hmm. this one being set in 99 before gay marriage was legal anywhere in the country, 
before civil unions were legal anywhere in the country. Um, it's, it's an interesting experience to see these characters have to live their lives as they do in a world that is not uh, ready to be made for them yet. I, I'm sure that some Arkansans would probably uh, speak out against me if they were in the room, just given some of the subjects we've talked about. There's almost a bit of Charles Portis flavor to this movie Ooh. and this story. And this may just be me, um, your lesbian film critic on the air right now, but uh, there are almost some flavors of Norwood in this, which for people who don't know is Charles Portis's first published novel about a guy who goes up to New York to track down some money he's owed and gets into some quirky road trip adventures himself. This kind of feels like that if it were rated R and start a pair of lesbians. All right. And uh, Norwood the novel is better than Norwood the movie. I'll tell you that. We need one or both Ethan, uh, one or both Coen brothers now to make a new version of Norwood. I would take Norwood. I would take uh, Masters of Atlantis. Yeah. I I would take any, any Portis novel they wanted to direct, Dog of the South. We're not going to review those next week, and you're not going to find Courtney's review of those non-existent movies at KUAF.com or OzarksAtLarge.com. You will find Courtney's review of Driveaway Dolls there right now. What will we talk about next week? Kyle, next week we will talk about what will probably be the biggest sci-fi movie this year, Dune Part 2. Courtney Lanning, as always, thank you so much for your time. Kyle, thanks for having me. Almost 30,000 people perished in the past 10 years trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea on their way to Europe. And film director Matteo Garona wants to make sure we don't lose sight of the stories behind each person. We wanted to humanize this number. We wanted to put the camera on the other side. His new movie, Yo Capitano, plus the latest news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend Edition Saturday with Scott Simon tomorrow morning beginning at 7. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, and 91.3 KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors to our Friday show this week included Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics, Becca Martin-Brown from the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and Courtney Lanning. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Our show makes it on the web with big-time assistance from Jack Travis. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thank you so much for listening. We've got a brand-new week of all-new shows beginning on Monday. Historic Cane Hill presents a Wild Bird Bonanza, Saturday, March 16th. Events include the gallery opening and awards ceremony for the 2024 Quail and Turkey Stamp Artwork Exhibition, a habitat restoration tour with wildlife biologists and land managers, and a ticketed quail dinner featuring Chef Case DeGaro. More at historiccanehillar.org. Support for KUAF comes from Atlas Obscura's Ecliptic Festival, a celebration of the 2024 eclipse at Valley of the Vapors in Hot Springs, April 5th through the 9th. This festival features music, science, art, and more. Information at ecliptic.atlasobscura.com.